0: Let us pray. Almighty God, by your blessed Holy Spirit, you have inspired the words of sacred scripture, so it is your infallible word written. By that same spirit, set me on fire this morning, that I may faithfully and clearly preach the scriptures, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction And also by that same Spirit, grip the hearts of this congregation. Enlighten the eyes of their minds that they may see your truth as it is in Jesus. Unstop their ears that they may hear you yourself speaking to them. Renew their wills that they may turn away from their sins. Embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And live holy lives of gratitude according to your gracious law. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, or one of the few Bibles, to the letter to the Colossians, the second chapter, beginning at the first verse. Listen to the word of God. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his holy word, and to his name be ascribed all glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and ever. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we have been having a series of sermons on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. There seems to be no doubt that the dominating thought of this letter is, Christ is all. These well-known lines from Charles Wesley's hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, express the central idea. Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Three texts from this letter sum up this truth. First, that in everything He, Jesus Christ, might be preeminent. The first chapter, the 18th verse. For in Him, Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Chapter 2, verse 9. And Christ is all, and in all. Chapter 3, verse 11. In this second chapter, the Apostle starts pulling out the weeds that are creeping into the church's faith and practice. The truth of the gospel is at stake. The Apostle deals with the Colossians gently as a loving pastor. Paul writes to encourage them, praying that their hearts might be knit together in love for each other and love for the gospel. For Paul, the most certain result of any acceptance of the new false teaching will not only be an embracing of error, but a breach in the unity of the church. Therefore, his special concern for the Colossians is that they should continue to be united in both doctrine and love. He writes specifically to encourage them to stick together in the truth of the gospel. Elsewhere, the Apostle Peter warns Christians to be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. This warning is not merely one that individuals need to heed. Whole congregations and denominations are in danger of going astray. Some of us remember from history the sad examples of many Puritan congregations in New England, which were founded by a strong preaching of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures apostatizing to Unitarianism, first downgrading and finally eliminating Jesus Christ from their creed altogether. Most of us can point to churches that were originally gathered and established by the true preaching of God's Word, but we have seen them in just the last few years wander into the wastelands of modernity in which the centrality of truth has disappeared, biblical categories lost, And worship is dominated by entertainment. Entertainment? What? Where is the New Testament emphasis on worship being with reverence and awe? For our God is a consuming fire. Reformed churches from the beginning have emphasized the fact that when we gather for public worship, we are serious. As we read the Word of God, preach the Word of God, sing the Word of God, pray the Word of God, and we see the Word of God demonstrated in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Joe Thorne writes insightfully, True worship may be painful one moment, confessing our sins, and as we encounter God's law and gospel, we rest in the assurance we have found in Jesus Christ. What is more dramatic than a condemned sinner being forgiven by a holy God? Than slaves being set free by the Savior? What is more thrilling than the Son of God standing in the place of ungodly sinners to save them from God's wrath? There is not only the danger of a Christ-denying arid liberalism, psycho babble, and finally a total abandonment of the faith, is also the awful possibility that a church can circle the wagons, become fossilized in a lifeless orthodoxy, which leads to not much more than an inward-looking, smug, mutual admiration society, the people making the dreadful error of thinking that knowing the truth about God is the same as knowing God. I think the hottest place in hell is probably reserved for those who hold the truth in unrighteousness or self-righteousness. Because of fallen humanity's tendency of simply going through the motions, unbelief and rebellion, history seems to show that the repeated cycle set forth in the book of Judges repeats itself down through the history of God's visible people. There is always a new generation arising which may not know the Lord or the work he has done for Israel. Remember, when Paul wrote Colossians, he was a prisoner in Rome, awaiting judgment and almost certain condemnation to death. So he was not free to visit them. But he agonized over them because he had heard that some of them were wandering from the truth of the gospel. And his pain throws a light on the passion with which he preaches and with which he writes. Some of these in the Colossian church were allowing themselves to be influenced in their thinking by the Gnostics, which more or less means the intellectual ones. The Gnostics were dissatisfied with what they considered to be the rude, bloody, simple Christian gospel. They thought of themselves as being intellectual, sophisticated, refined philosophers, smarter than most. This ministered mainly to their pride. To them, Jesus Christ was not unique. They insisted that Jesus was merely one of many emanations between God and human beings. Jesus might stand high in the series. He might even stand highest in the series, but he was only one of many. If human beings must find their own way to God, by intellectual knowledge, it was beyond the grasp of common folks. The ordinary people could never attain it. Gnosticism was founded on intellectual snobbery from which simple people were simply shut out. These were some of the plausible arguments that were threatening to delude them. So Paul meets this head-on by insisting that Jesus Christ is not one of a series, not one among many, not the partial revelation of God, but He is utterly unique In Jesus is the fullness of God. He is God. Jesus is not merely part of the story. Jesus is the story. The apostle pulls back the curtain on God's mystery. Here the mystery revealed is Jesus Christ clothed in his glorious gospel. The mystery refers to a secret once hidden, but which has now been revealed and understood. In fact, God called the apostles to make it known to all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Abraham had received a preview of the gospel. The prophets caught glimpses of it. But the apostles lived in a time of its fulfillment. And they were to unveil the gospel in its glorious fullness and take it to the ends of the earth, to both Jews and Gentiles alike. People from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. No one is able to figure out the gospel on his or her own. Down through the ages, human beings have been trying to deal with their guilt and shame in different unsatisfactory ways. They have attempted either by self-denial or by struggling to do good to even up their accounts with God. But that is not possible. Men and women are in a fallen state, spiritually deaf and blind, and they have hard hearts that do not seek after God. People can never discover the true gospel. Paul writes in another place, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If we receive the gospel with understanding and gladness and trust, it is because our sovereign God has revealed the gospel to us, has by the power of the Holy Spirit opened our blind eyes, unstopped our deaf ears, enlightened our blind eyes, and enabled our stubborn wills. The entire gospel is found in Jesus Christ alone, nowhere else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there is a God who corresponds to me, is agreeable to me. But if it is God who says where he will be, that place is the cross of Christ. Francis Schaeffer, writing about early Christianity, noted, the Caesars would not tolerate the worshiping of one God only. It was counted as treason. Their worship, that is Christian worship, became a special threat to the unity of the state during the third century and during the reign of Diocletian when people in the higher classes were becoming Christians in larger numbers. If they had worshipped Jesus and Caesar, they would have gone unharmed. They wouldn't have caused a stir but they rejected all forms of mixing Jesus with anybody else, with anything else. Salvation was in Jesus Christ alone. They worshiped the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They worshiped Him as the only God. They allowed no blend. All other gods were seen as false gods, nothings or demons. Jesus, our Lord, warns us, Watch out for false prophets. And how we need to pay attention to this warning. There are almost constant warnings in scripture against apostasy. That is forsaking to, forsaking or adding to the faith once delivered to the saints. In a similar way, the apostle warns the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. But this morning we also need to be aware that there's the danger not of only outrightly denying the gospel. Satan is satisfied if he can simply shift our focus away from the gospel. Christianity and. Christianity and politics. Christianity and how to have a better family life. Christianity and patriotism. Christianity and anything else. The devil constantly tries to distract us from the true gospel of Christ and Him crucified. Martin Luther put it this way, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Because of the human tendency, even of Christians, to look away from the gospel of Christ, Luther later quipped, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach the gospel to others, and beat it into our own heads. Because it's so... The default that sin causes is that we shift our focus. And we forget that it's all of grace and it's all from Jesus. And nowhere else. That's why it's so important to have and retain a basic understanding of the cross of Christ. Because it is at the cross that we find the heart of the gospel. John Stott, a great preacher of the cross, writes, The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion, between God as He is and we as we are. For God's love is holy love, Love which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. The law to which God must conform, which must satisfy, is not some law above him. It's from his own nature. Negatively, God cannot disown himself. He cannot contradict himself. Positively, he must be himself And act in conformity with His divine nature. And what is His divine nature? Scripture is clear. It's holy love. Holy love. Both of these held together. How then can God express His holiness without consuming us? And His love without condoning our sins? How can He save us and satisfy Himself simultaneously? It is an answer to these inescapable questions that the notion of substitution is revealed. Namely, that in order to satisfy Himself, God sacrificed, indeed, substituted Himself for us and for our salvation. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, the apostle didn't mean here that he only told the story of Jesus' crucifixion over and over again. He also said that he had preached the whole counsel of God. In other words, he preached both the law and the gospel. But he saw that everything said in the Old Testament and in the then developing New Testament either pointed to or flowed out from the cross. You see, Christianity without the cross at its center is no genuine Christianity at all. And we never get beyond needing to hear about the cross of Christ. Therefore, Christian preachers should never tire of preaching redundantly Christ and Him crucified. In the words of the old gospel song, tell me the old, old story for those who are know it best, are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. The heart of a believer leaps up in joy as he or she hears the gospel of the cross preached. Yes, yes, that is my only hope. That is my only plea. Jesus bled and died for me. This text says that all The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that have to do with salvation are hidden in Christ alone. In fact, because Jesus is Lord of creation, and that's been dealt with in the first chapter of this letter, this can be extended to everything. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, pointed out, there's not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ doesn't cry, mine. Do not look anywhere else because there is no other Savior. That is why both Jesus and His commissioned apostles made exclusive claims for Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Me. And His apostles preached, There is salvation in no one but Jesus, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And this text from the first letter of John. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John's Gospel says what is... Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Can it be any plainer than that? Jesus Christ is the only one who can save lost sinners. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save me. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can save any sinner across the whole wide world. Now, I don't have to tell you this morning that this exclusivity of Jesus Christ is despised by our culture. Even some Christians feel pressured into soft-peddling this truth. Many people in Western culture think that to preach Jesus as the only Savior is condescending, arrogant, impolite, and culturally insensitive. But this is exactly what we're called to do, brothers and sisters. Because there's salvation in no one else but Jesus. Are you willing to bear the reproach of the cross? Are you willing to endure the scoffing? Are you ready to face not fitting in? Are you willing to be thought of as one who's not with it? Jesus bore the jeers, the mocking, the spitting and taunting for you and for me? Will we say with the Apostle, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world? In this culture, if you take a stand like that, even in a very loving way, and of course it's showing that be done in a loving way, you're despised by a lot of people for that. I ask you this morning, have you turned away from your sin, your self-centeredness and grasped Jesus Christ by faith? Are you trying to hang on to Jesus plus your good works to be right with God? Are you trying to hang on to Jesus plus your outstanding reputation? To be right with God? Are you trying to hang on to Jesus plus your sophisticated intellectual understanding to be right with God? Are you trying to hang on to Jesus plus your appreciation of deep theology to be right with God? It was only when Martin Luther saw that even the things he was most proud of were shot through with mixed motives that he despaired of ever making himself acceptable to God. And then, through a careful study of Scripture, by God's grace, he came to an understanding of the gospel. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for you, not what you've done for him. And because of this, you can have assurance of your salvation. John Calvin writes that in this text, the apostle distinguishes between faith and mere opinion. The stability Paul frequently calls full assurance, which he always connects with faith, can no more be separated from faith than heat or light can be separated from the sun. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. You who deserve to die for your sins. But Jesus died instead of you in your place. And he rose from the dead to reject reject Jesus Christ is to spit in God's eye with everlastingly terrible consequences for yourself. The wrath of God forever in hell. To receive Jesus Christ brings the forgiveness of your sins. A friend who will never leave you nor forsake you. A family, the church, who will love you, challenge you, and care for you, confront you to be increasingly wholeheartedly committed. To live a life according to God's law that will bless you and those whose lives you touch, will fill your earthly pilgrimage with tremendous meaning, and promises you an eternity in heaven with Him and His people. How can you turn this down? How can you walk away from such a great salvation? Come to Jesus. Do not refuse Him. Hear Him say, come to me, all you who are worn out and burdened down. And I will give you rest. How can you refuse? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our gracious God, how we thank you for the gospel which is powerful to save sinners. May we constantly delight in Jesus who died in our place, who rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven and has promised to come again to receive us to himself. May we constantly keep our eye on him. Oh Lord, may we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author of and finisher of our faith. We pray for His name's sake. Amen.